in a pew in front of you, you should have a, a new, one of the new song books. And I just want to encourage you to just take it open. I just want to uh, look at one song in there as a way of introduction and, and praise the Lord. And that would be the song I just played, and hopefully we can learn to sing that one together soon. But it's number, it, well, there's not a number there, but Behold Our God, it's in alphabetical order, you'll see it uh, toward the front. Just look with me at the words. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Verse 3. Who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Amen? That is our God that we serve and that is the God that we desire to claim in truth this morning. Our mode of operation is, is verse by verse, uh, preaching through the scriptures, one verse at a time, teaching the truths of the word. But there comes time, uh, whether due to the needs of the body or society, where we break from that and we preach on a topic. And that would be what we are going to do this morning. I'm going to press pause on 1 John 5, and we're going to look at what the scriptures would say in light of the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage this past week. Uh, There's not enough time to address every question. There's not enough time to address every issue. And every issue has multifaceted sides. And I do think that those issues and questions need to be discussed in, in detail in the light of Scripture. But we won't be able to do that this morning, so I'm, I'm boiling it down to three points that by God's grace is going to give us a biblical foundation for thinking, it's going to encourage us in the Word, and prepare us for the work of head. These are the three things I want to look at this morning. Number one, the truth of God's design. Number two, the truth about love. And number three, by way of application, the truths that must govern our thinking. One, the truth of God's design. Two, the truth about love. And by way of application, number three, the truths that must govern our thinking. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that you've not left us without instruction. We thank you that in this scripture we can behold our God seated upon his throne. And that we, as we read that scripture, we can come and adore you. And that would be our desire this morning. So we ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask for grace that we might put action to our faith. We ask for grace that we might not have our minds darkened to the truth. But because of the light of Christ within us, be able to comprehend that which you desire for us in our lives, and how we might then proclaim that truth to others. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen. God has designed the body with something called a fight 
or flight mentality. When you're faced with a dangerous situation, when you're faced with a life-threatening situation, the body responds in two, one of two ways most of the time. You're either going to run from the situation or you're going to turn and confront the situation and fight it. And this fight-or-flight mentality isn't um, simply designated for just physical confrontation. It comes into play as well in other ways. Maybe you're having a confrontational conversation. Maybe it's a frustrating circumstance. Maybe it's a tough job or task that lies before you. And you can either turn and run or stand and address the issue. And if it wasn't bad enough that Thursday we had a ruling from the Supreme Court come down, we got doubled down on and on Friday we got the Supreme Court's decision on homosexual marriage being made legal in America. And I think this qualifies as a frustrating thing. It certainly qualifies as a uh, potentially tough job or task before us. And it may very well potentially be a life-threatening situation at some point down the road. So then the question will be, do we run or do we stand and fight? And my desire this morning is to biblically proclaim that I don't think either one of those is the biblical response. It's not to run and it's not to fight. In the 8th century, there was a man by the name of Boniface who was a missionary to modern-day Germany. And he went there amidst much difficulty. Many had gone before him and many had failed in the mission of proclaiming the truth. But he had been raised up for a man just as for his time and he went there and he took the took the truth into a land that was filled with false teachers, that was filled with physical brutality, and he stood for what was right. In 723, there was a situation, there was an encounter with all of these false teachers, much in the way that Elijah took on the prophets of Baal, and he, he stood before them as they were beginning to sacrifice to their false gods, he stood before them with an axe and he cut down the tree that was at the center of their religious practices. And it fell to the ground and many there around him thought that their false god would now strike him dead and they did not. Obviously. But this is what Boniface said. Let us stand fast in what is right and prepare our souls for trial. Let us neither be dogs that do not bark nor silent onlookers nor paid servants who run away from the wolf. Instead, where the battle rages, let us find ourselves. Run towards the roar of the lion. Run towards the roar of battle. That is where Christ's most glorious victories shall be won. A a firefighter doesn't run away from the fire. He runs into the fire to rescue victims that are trapped within. A pararescue man in Afghanistan doesn't run away from the gunfight. He runs into the gunfight for the purpose of saving those who are trapped or injured. And that's what Christians are called to do. We're called to run into the face of battle, not to fight as the world fights, but to take the the healing balm of the gospel into an area that is desperately needed at difficult times. And that's exactly where we're at right now. So we're not commanded to fight as the world fights. And we should not run from this because we have the truth. We're commanded to run in and take the truth of the gospel 
as a rescue mission for the lost and dying. Second Corinthians 5.20 We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. That is our, that is our message. Christ through us making his appeal be reconciled to God. Phyllis Schlafly uh, said in response to the Supreme Court decision, the marriage ruling is not the end, it's the beginning. 1973, we had Roe v. Wade come down and that did not settle the issue of, issue of abortion. In fact, it just threw gasoline on the fire and the issue is still raging. Well, this just threw gasoline on the fire of what is biblical, what is marriage, what is truth, what is love. And there'll be many, many uh, days ahead in this battle But Christians are going to desperately be needed on the front lines carrying gospel truth truth in this area. The roar of the battle in our our day has many different fronts. But as a church, we would be failing in our duty if we did not address them. And the two biggest ones are abortion and now homosexuality, or abortion and marriage. I'm going to take a look at those three points. The truth of God's design, the truth about love, And then by way of application, the truths that must govern our thinking. First, the truth of God's design. Anybody in here who's ever seen a little boy that enjoys tools that his father uses will have seen him take those tools and in his desire to do whatever his father's doing, use them in a very inappropriate way. The Japanese make some of the greatest, finest hand saws in the world. And they're very expensive. They're very thin blades, they're very fine steel, and they're handcrafted. And they're used for very particular jobs in woodworking. Well, now imagine that you have one of those fine saws, $100, $200, $300, and it's used for very particular things, and you keep it nice and sheathed for just its designed purpose. And one day you walk outside, and you see your son out in the dirt, in the rocks, He's sawing for all he's worth, wanting to be just like dad, taking that that saw, running it through the muck and the rocks, and ruining the saw, all for his intended purpose of wanting to use something and to do what he feels he needs to do out of love for what he wants to do. Well, that would be both an insult and a travesty to the man in Japan who handmade that instrument. And just in that way is what is happening in America. Well, we can say homosexuality is wrong, but we say it's wrong because it's not being worked out. Love and marriage is not being worked out in the way God has designed it. God's ways rule before our ways. We're going to go through a a few scriptures here, but these are truths that we all know, but we want to declare them. Let's go to Genesis 1. Flip with me in your Bible there. I want you to see these. We all know them, but I want us to read them clearly. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you flip over one page, you'll hit Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Flip over to the last book of the Bible before you get, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi 2. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Two more passages. Let's look at Matthew 19. Four through six. Matthew 19, four through six. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. And lastly, Ephesians 5. There are many other scriptures we could go to, but for sake of time, one more Ephesians 5. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This, in very simple ways, is the truth of God's design for marriage, that he made people male and female. And that's the way he designed it. And he designed that a male and female should be one in marriage for the purpose of not just intimacy, but procreation. That he might, that godly seed might be spread throughout all the earth. But let's go over to one passage, 1 Corinthians 6. There are many passages in scripture that we could go to that would speak the truth about uh, the fact that homosexuality is a sin. Romans 1 would be one. Uh, Leviticus would be another, 1 Timothy. But let's look in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And with these passages, we can therefore say biblically, and we can say lovingly, that all homosexuality in all its forms and fashion is sin against a holy God. 
and therefore requires that God in his holiness and yet in his love and yet in his justice and yet in his wrath send his holy son in order that he might make us holy that we might be able to live with him for eternity in a holy place. It required the sin, our sin, all sin to be taken upon the cross of Christ that we might be free from the bondage of sin and washed clean. You see that in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. All of us, every man, woman, boy or girl, is born in sin and is required, if we would be in right relationship with God, to respond to the grace of God in salvation today. Today is the day of salvation. And if we will come and repent of our sin, accept the free gift of salvation, we can be set free. And such were some of you. We're sitting here today as one time having been caught in bondage of sin in all its various forms and fashions. The truth is God has designed man and woman. He's designed us to be in union together. And he's not designed it to be man with man or woman with woman. We know this. It's the truth of God's design. Number two, the truth about love. The truth about love. If you read some of the, the reasons behind the decision for, uh, of the Supreme Court to make homosexual legal, you will find the word repeatedly used, love, L-O-V-E, love. And it's in many ways used as a justification for why a man could marry a man or a woman could marry a woman. And therefore it goes without saying that if we use, a, if we use the grounds of marriage to be love alone, we are ripe for all types of sin and debauchery that can come from that. You can then make the case for all sorts of sinful ramifications if you're basing the grounds of marriage upon love alone. But the question really has to be asked, did love win? You might see that. Love wins. Or what is wrong with, with love? If God is a God of love... Why would he prohibit someone from loving the way they deem is right? Why should, we, why should we be unloving to constrain someone in their love? And obviously we know the truth. But the truth is that scripture says biblical love for one another and God has restrictions. True love, according to scripture, has restrictions. It has limits. It has boundaries. It's not unconditionally accepting. Love, biblical love, is not unconditionally accepting. We're accepted by God, not unconditionally, but, by the, but on the merit and work of Jesus Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 13, maybe the chapter we would all go to for on love. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, is not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. If you just read verse 4 and 5 alone, you think, wow, the love is fully accepting. But read verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We'll speak next week in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Scripture never says 
that love comes without limitations or restrictions. We have those limitations and restrictions because God has designed that love should be modeled in a certain way. And if it's not modeled that way, it's not love at all. It's selfish. It's self-serving. It's self-pleasing. And it's only when we love others the way God has commanded to and the way God has set the standard that it becomes true love. We've, we've, got to, we've got to get back to a biblical definition of love. Because this is in many ways the, the base of, of what others are claiming as their justification to be able to love. Now I'm going to spend the majority of our time, the rest of our time, on truths that must govern our thinking. And I have seven of them. Hopefully we have enough time here. Truths that must govern our thinking. Taken from scripture here. And these are in many ways application, and and some of them are implications of what is to come. Number one, homosexuals are not the enemy. Homosexuals are not the enemy. Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you are just to view homosexuals from a, a, a mainstream media context, you get a very, very small percentage of those people, and they all look like they're vehemently opposed to everything that we would hold to, and they just want to spit on you, and they want to throw at you, and they want to do, they're just violent. It's a very small percentage, and they're not the enemy. The vast majority are people in your local workplace, your next door neighbor, next door neighbor, the person you buy coffee from, they, they live in and among us and half the time we don't even recognize it. They're not the enemy. We have an enemy, the, the enemy against our souls, the devil. And they do his bidding. That is their father. But, hear me clearly, those people are not the enemy. And if we approach them as the enemy, we approach them from the completely wrong context. We tend to then approach them in a fight mentality, not in a, in a mentality of bringing the truth in love. 1 Corinthians 6, again, and such were some of you. We've got to hold to that. I, in my sin, was, was deserving of the wrath of God as much as that individual in their sin deserves the wrath of God. But for the sake of Christ given to me by grace through faith, I would not know life. I would not have the understanding of what is truth. And until we can approach them from a missional aspect, a rescue mission possibility, we will approach them as an enemy and that is wrong. It is sin. They are not the enemy. We do not wrestle against them. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Number one, homosexuals are not the enemy. Number two, the church will have false teachers. We've got to remember this. The church will have false teachers. Second Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, repro- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And Paul then warns Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We've gone wrong in the biblical definition of love. We've gone wrong in the biblical definition of marriage. But let me be clear in telling you that the Supreme Court's decision on Friday did not come out of the blue. It came on the back of the church for many, many years, abdicating the truth of teaching what biblical marriage is. We've taught that it's just intimacy and love without the responsibility of children. We thought, we've taught that it can be intimacy and love and whatever else you want it to be. So therefore, we've taught in the Church of America a wrong understanding of biblical love in a marriage. And why should we be surprised then that it's then taken into the political sphere and it's become law? Because we've taught that for many years, not this church but the church as a whole in America. The church will have false teachers. We've got to watch out for these things. It's going to get even more confusing in the coming years. You've really, I would implore you, watch the terminology. Stick with biblical terminology because those who are trying to get wishy-washy on these issues will bring in really subtle words that are not biblical terminology. They might say something like, and this is happening, mainstream, some, some mainstream um, seminaries are teaching this. You can be a homosexual as long as you don't practice it actively. You can struggle with homosexuality and you can be tempted, but the temptation is not sin unless you act upon it. That's not true according to Scripture. Christ was tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin. But Christ did not have a heart of sin. He was perfect in all ways. We know according to James that our heart is desperately wicked. That our heart, that the lust and sin come from our heart. So these, these temptations that, those are, that anybody would have for sexual desires are sin. Because they're not the way God designed them to be. If you go to 1 Corinthians 9 and look at the Greek, it's not just that you practice homosexuality, it's actually that you would be effeminate. You can't just look like a woman and not fulfill that. You have to walk and dress like a man or walk and dress like a woman because that's the way God designed it. The church will have false teachers. We must stick with biblical terminology. We must stick with the truth of Scripture. Number three... We are commanded to teach our children God's ways. Christopher read in First Light, Deuteronomy 6, You shall teach them diligently to your children. The commands of the Lord you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We as parents cannot run from the issue of homosexuality and I believe that Christians especially homeschoolers have done a pitiful job in the last 15 to 20 years of disciplining our children and understanding God's design for sexuality a, a pitiful job and more than ever now that has got to change there's been many there's been much talk about um, after the ruling here of how really the, the last 15 years 
have been a, a huge shift. The internet has come into play. Internet pornography has come into play. Homosexuality has come into play. That's in the last 15 years. This is not the 1990s anymore. This is going to be the issue of our day for the next 50, 100 years plus, maybe to all the way till Christ returns if he, if he tarries. This is going to be the issue of the day. It's not going to leave. We've got to address it as parents. We've got to take it on biblically. Internet pornography, Hollywood, homosexuality, it's here to stay. And it's the world that my children are going to grow up with, unfortunately. But, but we've got to be equipped to fight, to, to give them the truth of Scripture, to fight against the, the evils that are out there that are going to prey upon the lust of their heart. And if we don't give them that truth, we in some way support the lie. The smallest sin put Christ upon the cross. But we would be naive to not look at the biblical instructions and in sin and realize that Scripture gives clear indication that sexual sin in all its forms is, is, is one of, if not the sin, that has some of the biggest horizontal ramifications. It destroys marriage. It destroys family. It destroys your body. So why would we not speak the truth on these issues? Why would we not give them the biblical understanding that the, the desire for these things is a wonderful reason, is a beautiful reason, and is to be culminated in marriage and marriage alone? And by not teaching them the truth, we're essentially supporting a lie in that. We've got to change this as parents. And yes, it needs to be age-appropriate. I'm not suggesting it should not be. It should be age appropriate. But if these things are not being discussed in the home as your children grow up, I think, I think you're, you're making a mistake. Number four, homosexuals are, are, are not the enemy, number one. Number two, the church will have false teachers. Number three, we are commanded to teach our children God's ways. Number four, sin does not keep its promises. Sin does not keep its promises. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he, come, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Dr. Russell Moore said this week, the sexual revolution can't keep its promises. Our churches must be prepared to receive its refugees. The church needs to be ready to receive the carnage as we already are in some ways but it will only increase from here on out the carnage of sexual sin in all its forms pornography homosexuality adultery there's an extremely high rate of of suicide and, and depression and many other struggles that come with these sins and every one of us without christ are in bondage to sin we're wrapped with chains that have no lock and have no key, unable to do anything other than what Satan, who's holding that chain, commands that we do. And unless the holy God does a holy work upon our heart, there is no way we can be set free from that bondage. But those who are in bondage in this area, they'll say things like, this is just who I am, I can't change that. And we've got to be ready as the church of America as a church here in Fredericksburg to be able to say, no, that's not true. Christ came and set us free. 
And when the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. We've got, we've got to be ready with that message because it's coming. It's here already. The church has got to be ready with these issues. We've got to be ready to go, I want those who struggle with gender identity in our church. I want those who experience same-sex attraction in our church. And I would be, I would be shocked if there's not one person here, boy, girl, man, woman, who doesn't experience some of those things. I would be shocked. Because it's the sin of our day. And we're tempted toward those things. And our heart's drawn to sin. It's the sin of our day. And we've got to be ready to address those biblically in love and give them hope and freedom in Jesus Christ. And if we just sit there and tell them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, it's not what they need. In many ways, they know they're wrong. They need to know that they can be then set free and made right in Christ. And we can give those who need hope, hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number five, we need true pictures of biblical marriage. I referenced already Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound, talking about marriage, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. We need true pictures of biblical marriage. Marriage is broken in this culture, but we need to be rebuilding a true picture of biblical marriage. Fathers need to be leading and ruling their families with love and grace and humility and understanding. And mothers need to be modeling submission and obedience and love and care and nurture as unto Christ. And it's even more important now that we promote a true picture of marriage. In some ways, what happened Friday was what we, what we already knew and we didn't want to address. The fact that marriage is broken. Well, now we know clearly it's broken. But we can fix it. And we can go about the work of fixing that. And it's going to start within each of our own homes. A father seeking to model biblical spirituality and the headship of the home and God the Father. And wives seeking to submit to Scripture in those areas. That they're called to submit to Scripture. And carry out a, a, a true picture of biblical marriage that portrays the gospel as best by the grace of God as we're able to do on this side of heaven. We need that desperately. So if we go outside first, and try, outside into the world first, and try to call them to something that is to true biblical marriage without first modeling it in front of them, we have no foundation for our argument. That leads me to number six. Number six. Repentance must be modeled to the world. First Peter 4, 16 through 19. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The point here is we cannot focus on the sin of homosexuality to the detriment of repenting of our own sin, especially those sins that pertain to marriage. Romans 2, 17-24 But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, but you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let not the name of God be blasphemed among the world because of the way that we live. It should call them to Christ. And we cannot call them to truth if we're not modeling that. We must be modeling repentance within our own home. And this nation is under judgment and desperately needs that. Probably something that's going to go very uh, under, swept under the rug with this, with this ruling is the fact that three of the five that voted for homosexuality, homosexuality being legal as marriage in America were women. And the Bible says that you're under judgment when you're ruled in that way. We're under judgment. We need repentance and it must begin first in my heart, then my family, then my church, then my neighborhood, then my town, then my state. But it's got to first begin in our own hearts. So maybe we, may we be modeling repentance to a world that desperately needs to repent of our, their sin. But we can show them how to do that through the gospel of Christ. Number seven, lastly. We are on a mission. Number seven, we are on a mission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've got to have a missional mindset. We're no longer able to just kind of come into a holy huddle and hope the world gets settled out and we're going to be over here, we're going to be raising our children, we're going to be seeking to just get ourselves a little, on a little desert island in the midst of all that's going on around us. We've got to have the biblical missional mindset of the Great Commission. And that, that mission is going to involve sacrifice. And we've got to continually remind ourselves and teach our children that as followers of Christ, he gave us life. He gave us life through the life of his son. He had to sacrifice. He gave us his son for us. And we may be called to give up our our jobs or our money or our prestige or our friends or our health or even, even our life in the name of obeying Christ and obeying his commands. And to teach our children that life is going to be, is going to be hunky-dory and, and it's all going to good is essentially preaching them, to them a prosperity gospel. We've got to help them realize that if you follow Christ, this comes with sacrifice. This comes with a price. And it may be the price of your life. Already people have lost their jobs and their family and their money and their prestige. And that number is only going to increase in the coming years. And that, that cannot be a surprise to us. We should not be shocked at that, that happening. It, it, there's many implications of this ruling that happened on Friday. And one of them is per, Christians will be persecuted. We will, there is no such thing in America as freedom of religion or freedom of speech. It's freedom to say what we want to say and you not as Christians say what you want to say. Well, that's going to get really tough. 
and it's going to affect your family. And if you, now is the time to begin preparing for that. To, to again call ourselves back to the mission of Scripture to realize that we have the truth and we're called to proclaim it in love to a lost and dying world because that has been proclaimed to us. Let me read in closing here one more this quote from Boniface. Let us stand fast in what is right and prepare our souls for trial. Let us neither be dogs that do not bark nor silent onlookers nor paid servants who run away from the wolf. Instead, where the battle rages, let us find ourselves. Run towards the roar of the lion. Run towards the roar of battle. That is where Christ's most glorious victory shall be won. There's many more, vic- there's many more battles to go, but we've got to remember as Christians that we're running into this battle knowing that the victory is already secured upon our side. It has been secured and bought by the blood of Christ. And we run in with the healing balm of the gospel to give the truth to this world. And we proclaim that what happened on Friday and what will continue to happen is is wrong, is against God's ways. But to then go and call them back to God's ways, realizing that God's ways are the best ways. Calling ourselves to God's ways, because God's ways are the best ways. And to conform ourselves to the image of Christ, because that in itself is true love. If we're not doing it according to Christ's commands, if we're not doing it in conformity to Christ, it's not love at all. It's selfish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at Scripture. And we realize, Lord, that these things uh, may not be able to be proclaimed in frankness without fear of persecution much longer. We may not be able to open our Bibles and not have fear of reprisal. The day is changing all around us. And yet, Father, in many ways, it is a glorious day to live because more than ever now, the line is drawn clearly between those who stand on the side of truth by the righteousness of Christ and those who stand on the side of evil through their father, the devil. And, oh, Father, we rejoice to know that we stand upon the side of truth, not because of some ability of our own, not because of some wonderful ability to think logically or truthfully, but because darkened minds, darkened hearts, closed ears, blind eyes, myself bound in sin and chains, unable to free myself, has been freed by the blood of Christ and given in the righteousness of Christ. And Father, we want to proclaim across that line and if necessary, go across that line as you've called us to, to proclaim a, a gospel that is one of love and one of truth. And Father, may we have stiff spines to stand on the truth humbly, wisely, but, but immovable, steadfast upon the rock of Christ, upon the truth that is there in Scripture. And that you, you have truth in all You've given us truth in Scripture for every area of life. Father, in many ways, this, this situation is really comes down to in the church of do we believe 
in all of Scripture, in the inerrancy of Scripture. Father, may we stand upon all of it. We thank you, Father, for the grace that has been afforded to us. May we be uh, prepared, well prepared as a church for the, for the carnage, for the unkept promises of, of sexual sin that, that desperately needs help. May we be ready as a church. May we be ready to, to deal with sinners and their sin in an appropriate and biblical way. May we be ready, Lord, to deal with sin in our own homes, in our own hearts, in an appropriate and biblical way. Not proclaiming simply a, uh, a legalistic mentality upon how to free oneself from sin, but proclaiming that Christ alone frees us from sin. And your word gives us the practical ways to do so. Father, we thank you for this day, the opportunity to now go to a time of prayer. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would stir the hearts of the men in this room, that we would be men of prayer, women of prayer. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.